invite you to take a Bible and turn to the uh, New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, page 952 in these Bibles in the pews. It's great to serve on a church staff and with associated ministries where we essentially have a whole team of preachers. I'm grateful Elliot Everett will preach next Sunday. You remember that, don't you, Elliot? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, good. But uh, if you were not here last week, we began a series of sermons. Don't, I don't plan to cover every verse of 1 Corinthians, but a series of sermons from 1 Corinthians. And uh, we looked at the first nine verses, and today we'll look at verses 10 through 17. Let me read the passage, and then I'll remind you some about the church in Corinth. But beginning in verse 10, hear God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let me lead us in prayer. O Lord, today we we pray with the psalmist that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were not here last week, uh, I told you a little bit about the background of this letter. And I mentioned that that the city of Corinth was located in what is modern-day Greece. And Greece is shaped like this. It's a a peninsula, and then there's a a narrow part in the middle, and then it gets large again. So you have the northern part, the southern part, and then you have this isthmus that connects the two that's eight miles wide. Corinth was right on that isthmus, and because of its great location, it became a prominent trade center, whether from the ocean or those crossing over land. And many cultures came there, like most port cities. There were people from other countries and other religions and so forth all lived there in the city of Corinth. Every two years, Corinth would host the Isthmian Games, second only in prominence to the Olympic Games. It had a large theater in Corinth that could seat 18,000 people. It had a concert hall that would seat 3,000 people. On the outskirts of the city was a large hill about 2,000 feet high, and on that hill was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and it housed uh, many temple prostitutes. And because of that, the city uh, had a reputation throughout that part of the world as being very immoral and so forth. Paul comes here in roughly 51 AD, and he He uh, evangelizes. As was his pattern, he would go first to the synagogues uh, where the Jews would gather to study the scriptures, and he he would begin to teach and and to preach the gospel. And the leader in Corinth, the leader of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, was converted. Uh, And Paul stayed there 18 months, 
You can read about the beginning of the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the first 17 verses of that chapter. He goes, after 18 months in Corinth, he travels to Ephesus. He stays in Ephesus three years. Uh, while he is in Ephesus, he corresponds with the church in Corinth. And this is not the first letter that we have or that was written by Paul to Corinth. He refers to another letter in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. So this is really 2 Corinthians. Uh, we don't have the first letter. Uh, but the occasion for this letter was twofold. First, there were oral reports by Chloe's people that there was quarreling and division among the, the church there in Corinth. Secondly, they have written him, some of them have written him a letter asking his instruction on a variety of issues. So that's what later will come in 1 Corinthians is instruction on a variety of issues in response to their questions to him. We looked at the first nine verses or so last week and Paul begins the letter by giving thanks to God for them. He compliments them on the fact that they're recipients of God's grace. He calls them wealthy. He probably not meant so much financially wealthy, though they, there would have been wealthy people among them, but they were rich in spiritual gifts. God apparently had richly blessed. This was a multi-gifted, spiritually gifted congregation. We would have been impressed, apparently, with the variety of gifts among God's people there. He compliments them that they're awaiting the return of Jesus. And I mentioned that it was odd given the, uh, the context of the letter, that he starts on such a positive note. They, part of their divisions is they are quarreling, and some of it has to do with negative comments about Paul himself, the very man who had planted the church there. Uh, they were complaining about him or, or uh, seeking to question him about his authority from God and so forth. And yet he begins on such a positive note. Now, it's amazing to me what people remember from a sermon because I made a, what I view was a passing comment, and this week, the only comment I've gotten about the sermon is on this passing comment. Here's what it was. I said that Barbara and I are taking care of our daughter's dog, and she lives in Atlanta doing an internship. Our daughter does, not the dog, and we take care of this dog who's demolishing the backyard and the, eating the end of the house off and, and all these other things that big puppies do. And I said, that, why do we love and care for the dog? Because our daughter loves the dog. And Paul loved them because he saw them the way God saw them. They were recipients of God's grace. And that is the only thing that can really protect us from divisions in the church. When we rub each other wrong, when we dislike another person, when somebody offends you, I have got to, when I'm offended, see that person the way God sees him or her. And that's what Paul did with them. Now let's look at the, after that warm greeting, let's look at his first, uh, uh, his first getting into the meat of the matter. And that's going to be about divisions in the church. And he begins with an appeal. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the word appeal today typically in a legal sense. You know, this court rendered this a judgment and it's being appealed. That you're going to take it to a higher court or a higher authority. That's not what Paul means. When he appeals, he's saying, I am earnestly asking you, I am requesting of you, I am begging you to do something or not to do something. And so it's an earnest request. It's not a threat. It's really not even a command. But his 
earnest appeal is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, this isn't just from me, this is in the name of Christ. I'm bringing this to you, this request from him. So follow this, Corinthians, he's saying, not out of respect so much for him, but out of regard to their Savior Christ. And his appeal has three aspects. And the first thing he says, I want you all to agree. That's in verse 10 too. Literally, to agree in, in this word means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. They should confess with one accord their faith in Christ. They should be at peace with one another. So he's not appealing for them to have uniform opinions about everything, that their preferences all be the same. That's not his appeal. It's that they say the same thing about what it means to be right with God through Christ. We find similar teaching in Philippians 2 where he writes, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. So that's the first aspect of his appeal, that there uh, be unity. In the second part, he says that there be no divisions among you. That's still in verse 10. Uh, Literally, the word division means to, to tear a garment to rip it apart, that there be no tears in the body there, the body of Christ. And at the present time, there apparently was not division, not enough that they were not worshiping and communing together. They still were together, but there's quarreling among them. There's potential for what we would call today church splits. And so Paul tells them, stop, stop quarreling, that there be no divisions. And the third aspect of his appeal is not only stop divisions, but also be united. The end of verse 10, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Um, the best illustration of unity, or the clearest one I think the Bible gives us, is the human body. And in 12, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, just a few pages over, you don't need to turn there, but he compares us in the body of Christ, believers in the church, with parts of the human body. And he says, For just as the body is one, this is from 1 Corinthians 12, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And so forth and so on. And he goes on and he says, The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. And he goes on and on talking about these, these parts of the body, and then he ends in verse 12 and 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So here's a, a human body, a healthy human body with fingers and, and toes and feet and, and knees and eyes and ears. And he, he says the, all these things are different, Each member is different. A hand is not a foot. A foot is not a hand. But there's a unity there in the body that they work together. I was just watching uh, Simone Biles win that all-around gold medal the other night. And, you know, what's being said about her maybe is the greatest gymnast of all time. And Barbara made the comments that imagine now how many people are going to be named Simone, (laughs) you know, in the years to come. But to think how the mind tells the body to do certain things and through the discipline and the, the, 
the coordination and the God-given talent and all these things to be able to do these amazing feats as a gymnast. Paul talks about the body and, and that it's a diversity, you might say, but a unity. There's harmony amidst the differences. Now, the, I'm going to read you something that you may not know where it came from, but it came from a 17th century writer named Rupert Meldunius. Now, that's why you didn't know where it came from, okay? And he put it this way. In necessary things, unity. In non-essential things, mutual toleration. And in all things, love. So what are the essentials? What are the essentials of the faith? Turn with me. I'm going to ask you to turn to this passage. Go over to 1 Corinthians 15. Same letter. Paul's going to remind them of what he preached to them. What was the message he delivered to them? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you, in other words, when he came and he brought the gospel to Corinth, what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. So these are the essentials. These are the, the first important things he's going to talk about. Here they are. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Okay, what's he describing there? The person and work of Christ. That's an essential to the faith. Then he goes on from there. Then he appeared, this is verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about apostolic authority. The scriptures, the authority of the scriptures. So what Paul does in saying these are the essentials of the faith, he boils it down to the person and work of Christ and the authority of the scriptures. Now those are the essential things. There's to be unity about those. The people in Corinth had no doctrinal disagreement. It's interesting to me, it's, it's sad to me, but it seems as though most divisions that take place in churches are typically not over doctrine. They're over personality and they're over taste. They're over some personality that is divisive for one reason or another or preference and taste. I mean, if I were to say, how many of you here, let's take a poll on what color we'd like these walls painted. And then let's take a poll on what color or these pew cushions should be. We could have a fight on our hand in a, matter, in, in a matter of minutes. I mean, everybody's got an opinion about that. That's not an essential of the faith. When I teach the uh, inquirers class, I, I talk to them about these are the essentials of the faith the existence of God, that God created everything out of nothing, the person and work of Christ, salvation by faith. And then I teach them the distinctives of our Presbyterian heritage. And earlier in the service, we, in the first service, we had a, a baptism of an infant. And I say that's, that's one of our, along with, that's been the majority opinion of, of most of the Christian church through history, by the way, anyway, but that we do this and why we do this and why do we sprinkle when we can immerse and pour, we can do those things as well if it was set up that way. Uh, why do we have a plurality of elders? We have elders and deacons, not just deacons like some churches and the pastor is the only elder. 
why do we just have men as preachers and officers, and on and on and on. And then I say, now, to join the church, you may say, you know, I don't really buy into this infant baptism stuff, and I'm really questioning the whole idea of baptizing with sprinkling. And I don't think we ought to have rule by elder. I think the congregation ought to run the church. I tell them, you can believe that and still join the church because we don't see those as essentials of the faith. But if you say, I don't think Jesus really lived or he, you know, was just an exceptional human being who was an excellent teacher, that's an essential of the faith that denies the, the basis of the faith. So he is wanting them to be unified in the, ba- in the essentials of the faith. You with me? Okay, you are. You're ready for me to move on, I can tell. Right now, look, verse 11, he talks about now specifically this report that's come to him from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe is. This is the only time she's mentioned in the, the New Testament. There's lots of speculation as to who she might be, but obviously she was well known to the Corinthian church. And she had, uh, some of her people had been in Ephesus, and they had told Paul, look, there's quarreling there, and here's the nature of it. You've got some people that are saying, I'm a Paul. You've got some that are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas. Some are saying, I'm of Christ. Now, sometimes it's helpful to give a source. Sometimes it's not. I can promise you, if you ever tell me something, you're not going to be surprised that I use it in a sermon the next week and give your identity away. I don't do that without a person's permission, or unless they've died, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Uh, But so sometimes, though, it's helpful to say, uh, look, this is where the information came from Uh, many years ago. There was a, a man here in our church, and he, he just really went off the deep end. I mean, he just really turned his back on God and, and everybody else. It's not who you're thinking of, but it, it was bad. And I, was, I tried to communicate with him. I, uh, I'd written to him. He wrote me back. Now, let me explain it. For those that are under 30, there was a time that you actually took a pen and paper and you would send it in the mail, but you can read about that in a dictionary. Google it. And so uh, he writes back a letter, and basically he doesn't deal with the issues. Instead, he wants to uh, implicate the church as being a hotbed of gossip. Well, I'm surprised people are saying such things about me around the church. So I wrote back and I said, uh, well, these are the things that are said by this person, this person, this person, all who are members of your family. They were relatives. And at that point, I said, I've got to, this is where this is coming from. And so it, this is not gossip. It's, that's the source. There's a time and place for that. Here, Paul says, and it's more or less like I'm not imagining this, this has come to me by Chloe's people. That had some credibility with them. Okay, what did they mean, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos? It's no mystery that during the spread of the first century church, the tension between Jews and Gentiles continued to an extent within the churches. What was the relationship to be? What what practices were still to be observed by these Gentile believers and, and Jewish converts? And we see that dealt with throughout the book of Acts and in the book of Galatians and other places. So our, our speculation here is perhaps it was more the Gentiles in the Corinthian church who were saying, I'm a Paul. And he was a missionary to the Gentiles. 
And Paul is not interested at all in getting any personal recognition. Like I said, he had planted the church. He probably personally led a number of these people to faith in Christ. He was their spiritual father. And yet he says, don't, don't follow me. I don't say I'm of Paul. And then you had another group. I'm of Apollos. If you remember, Apollos was brilliant. He, he was from the, the collegiate university town of Alexandria. And he was well-educated. And he was a great apologist and a tremendous speaker. And he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. And probably some people were impressed. He had, he had followed Paul to pastor. He had been Paul's successor in Corinth. And he was the Rabbi Zacharias of his day. And so they were saying, he, he's our man. I mean, you, you want somebody really smart? He's our guy. So maybe this was the intellectual crowd. Then the next group, I'm of Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for, name for uh, Peter, the disciple. And Peter, of course, was the missionary to the Jews. And so perhaps it was a Jewish contingency there. And they, they are taken with Peter, with Cephas. And then, of course, there's always a spiritual group that, well, we just follow Christ. You know, you, you may have Paul over there or Apollos or, or Peter, but, but we, we follow Christ. So maybe you have the Jewish party, you have the intellectual party, you have the Gentile party, and, and then there, of course, there's the, the uh, pure party, the followers uh, of Christ. And to deal with this, Paul just asks some rhetorical questions beginning in verse 13. And his first question is, is Christ divided? There's a, there's a powerful way of asking questions to let people answer them themselves that will make a much bigger impact than if you give the answer. Is Christ divided? My father uh, was a lawyer and then a judge. and um, He died many years ago, but I came home from school one time and uh, I was eating... I think it was lunch with him where he would often eat lunch and it was a kind of a grill down in the bottom the basement of the courthouse there in my hometown there were a lot of law enforcement and legal people and they were all they'd come in and come and go and he was when I went in he was sitting with a man who he introduced me to I don't remember that I'd never seen him before and he was congratulating this this lawyer this other lawyer on winning a particular um case that involved some kind of, of damages where a man working in a munitions factory had lost a limb through uh, some kind of explosion. And there had been a big lawsuit and, and the man was awarded what at that time seemed to me an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, I'm just going to use the figure $100,000 just to make the point. Well, my dad told me when the man left, he, he told me about the case and that this this man had uh, this man that had been injured had been uh, awarded this money and by the look on my face and by the words I said my dad thought I thought that's an enormous amount of money for that limb and uh, I smell a rat (laughs) he could tell by all by the look on my face and my dad said it's a lot of money isn't it I said that's a lot of money he said it really is would you let me have your leg for that amount of money? And I said, no. He said, it's not so much money anymore, is it? Would you give up your eyes for a million dollars? 
suddenly that what sounds like a huge amount doesn't, you say, I really wouldn't. Would you lose your ability to walk for half a million dollars? No, I wouldn't do that. Okay, well, it's not so much money anymore, is it? Paul takes these questions to deal with their party spirit. Is Christ divided? And then, and then the second one is really powerful. Was Paul crucified for you? He's calling them back to the truths of the gospel. Of course it was an absurd thought. Did Paul redeem you? Was Paul the one that died for your sins on the cross? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? In the first service I mentioned that little James was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Of course you're not baptized in the name of another person. His point, Paul wants him to focus on Jesus. Now, I believe in discipleship. I've had mentors, I still do in my life, that I look up to and have had great influence on me. And when I have to make big decisions or I need counsel, there are certain people I call on the phone, and I think the world of them. But I learned long ago that all people are sinful. And if you put your trust in a pastor or some author or some blogger or some Christian leader and you begin to elevate them in your mind to where you think that they are something special, as in infallible, you are in for disappointment. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'd say don't put anybody on a pedestal. And Paul is saying don't put him on a pedestal. Christ should be the focus. Then in verses 14 to 17, I won't spend much time on that, he deals specifically with the issue of baptism. And the fact that some were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. Paul baptized me, as though that was some special category. And he says, I basically don't even remember. I do remember I baptized this person, this person, this household here like that. The others, I don't even remember. And you say, well, does baptism matter? Yeah, it matters. The Great Commission, we're to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Uh, so if uh, baptism is a command that we are to follow. But look where he gives priority. He says baptism, basically saying, is important, but what's really important is the preaching of the gospel. That's what's most important. So is baptism an essential of the faith? Some people want to make it that way. I'll tell you right now, we don't think it's an essential of the faith. The, your mode of baptism, uh, John Piper. When John Piper was here speaking at a banquet many years ago, Barbara and I drove him to the airport up in Atlanta the next morning. We're going up there in the car, and he is talking to me about, why don't you come up to the pastor's conference I have in February? Because the theme this year is going to be building fences. And he said, here's, here's what I mean by that theme. And Sinclair Ferguson and these other people were going to speak. He said, Chip, you and I agree with about 98%, well, about 98% of what you believe and I believe we'd be in perfect agreement on. He, he didn't believe in infant, he doesn't believe in infant baptism. But pretty much everything else, he said, we're in agreement. He said, but you could not join my church. Why? Because I will not be immersed. I'm not going to deny my Reformed covenant baptism. And he said, yet another person could come from a Baptist church to our church and he could join and he and I may not agree with half of one another with all the theolo theological aberrations that are around. And then he said, there's something wrong with this picture. 
I thought that was pretty, I mean, it was kind of an amazing conversation. It only took a, about three minutes in the car. So Paul is saying, yes, baptism. He's not saying it's not important. But who, who baptizes you is not important. And when it comes between the preaching of the gospel and baptism, this is a secondary issue at best. It's a tertiary issue. Preaching the gospel is a primary issue. So he's saying that's where the focus should be. Okay, a few last comments before I finish. What would Paul say to us today? I think that he, he would plead with us to always be alert to the importance of unity. And I think we are thankful to God for the unity he has given this church. And some of you have come out of churches that were warring factions. And I am not aware of any major divisions in our church. We have a multitude of opinions. We have a multitude of preferences and taste. Every individual person on the planet does. But we should never take what unity God gives us for granted. And let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, the scripture says. I have an elder Christian brother, a man I greatly respect. I don't put him on a pedestal, but I appreciate him and I respect him. And he makes this comment. Most churches are hanging by a thread and it's a real short thread. And they look real strong until one split happens and then the whole church, like it, it folds. I don't know if that's always true, but I think it is a word to say, be careful. We, we have to be careful. When we start dividing on certain things, how do we talk, who do we talk to, how do we say it, and so forth. Secondly, I think he would, of course, prioritize the gospel. Verse 17 said, he sent me to preach. We're all to be gossipers of the gospel. You say, well, I, I can't talk about it very well. I don't know how to present it away. Well, you could bring people to church, can't you? Can't you invite somebody to maybe a home Bible study or someplace where they'd, they'd hear it, and they won't go unless you invite them? And for the unbeliever, the skeptic that may be here today, you say, well, I don't know about all this stuff. I hadn't, put, I hadn't begun to connect the dots with all this religion stuff. I'll tell you right now, there's not salvation in baptism. There's not salvation through the Lord's Supper, as important as those things are. The salvation relationship with God is through the work of the living Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only Redeemer. Now what I'd like to do, in, in obedience to this, about speaking the same words, is for us now to use the Apostles' Creed. Now let me live, give you, it's printed there in your folder. But for those that don't know what this is, it, this is probably the most used creed, statement of faith, by a variety of denominations around the world and through history. Now, it doesn't go back to the original apostles. It covers some of their basic teaching, but its present form we trace back to about the 4th century. And yet it's simple, it's clear, and it's brief with the essentials of the faith. So let me ask you to stand now, if you will. And let's affirm, let's say the same word. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please remain standing and let's sing in Christ alone.